0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. On this episode, I'm rebroadcasting a recent episode of the Lawfare Podcast, in which Brookings Senior Fellow Benjamin Wittes interviews Brookings President John R. Allen and Brookings Vice President Darrell West about their new book, Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. In their book, just published by the Brookings Institution Press, Alan and West discuss both the opportunities and risks posed by artificial intelligence and how near-term policy decisions could determine whether the technology leads to a utopia or dystopia. My thanks to Benjamin Wittes for sharing his excellent interview with me to share with you all. The Lawfare Podcast is an audio production of Lawfare, a blog about hard national security choices, which you can find online at lawfareblog.com. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, the Current, and our Events Podcast. And now, here's Benjamin Wittes with John R. Allen and Daryl West.
1: many of the data sets that are being used to train ai are either unrepresentative or incomplete and that becomes a big source of bias i mean we see this very clearly in the facial recognition software area where a lot of the pictures that are used to train a facial recognition system come from caucasians and so it turns out the facial recognition software actually is pretty accurate for white people uh, but not for non-white people so There's an obvious recommendation here, uh, which is in order to reduce the bias in uh, AI in areas like this, we need to improve the representativeness of the data that go into those algorithms.
2: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 17th, 2020. Daryl West is Vice President and Director of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution, John Allen is the president of the Brookings Institution and a retired U.S. Marine Corps four-star general. They are together the authors of the book Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. The book is a broad look at the impact that artificial intelligence systems are likely to have on everything from the military to healthcare to vehicles and transportation and to international great power competition. It's also a deep dive on the question of how we should govern AI systems. What makes for ethical uses of AI? What makes it scary? What are the anxieties that people have about artificial intelligence? And to what extent are the fears legitimate? It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 17th, John Allen and Daryl West on Artificial Intelligence. I want to start with some of the big overarching themes that you guys deal with in this book. And the first of them is just the question of whether the concept of AI is discrete enough and definable enough to organize policymaking around since you know, we've had computers doing big data analytics and making decisions for a long time. Uh, What distinguishes AI of the sort that you guys are talking about here from the stuff that's been going on ever since we've had, you know, kind of cloud computing and mass marketing and, you know, big platform companies that are Uh, making decisions regarding what ads to serve us every moment of every day? Well, AI
1: is automated software that learns from data, text, or images, and then makes intelligent decisions based on that. So I think the key distinguishing features are intelligence, learning, and adaptability. I mean, that's really what distinguishing AI from some of these past uh, technological uh, solutions. Uh, In our Turning Point book, we argue that AI is the transformative technology of our time. We're seeing it deployed in many different sectors, from healthcare and education to transportation, e-commerce, and national defense. Some of the issues raised are cross-cutting in the sense that, like privacy, it cuts across every uh, particular sector. Some of the other policy issues, though, are really sector-specific. And the policy solutions will need to be tailored to that particular sector.
2: And so what what do you think of, Daryl, as the cross-cutting issues? When you say some of the issues are cross-cutting, there are certain themes that come up again and again in these chapters, you know, for example, the possibility of algorithmic bias or you know, sort of governance of the algorithms. But how would you describe the sort of cross-cutting policy challenges of AI? I mean, the
1: things that people worry about with uh, AI are issues such as uh, fairness, uh, bias, especially racial bias is a big concern these days, the transparency of AI, like nobody really understands what's inside the black box and how decisions are being made. Human safety is an issue. We have a chapter on autonomous vehicles and transportation. So the question is, you know, are autonomous vehicles going to be safe? Uh, That is a big concern. And then the question of who decides. I think one thing that's distinctive about our book is we emphasize both the policy aspects, but also the governance questions. The question of who should decide. In the past, we pretty much delegated a lot of the decisions to private companies. Uh, Now the public has a greater need for public engagement. Policymakers are coming in. Regulators are starting to uh, think about this uh, space. So those are, I think, the big issues that animated our discussion of AI.
3: Daryl is 100% correct. Many of the functions that you described in the first question, uh, where you talked about big data analytics and, and supercomputing. Many of the, what would appear to have been decisions, but really automatic decisions. Uh, what we're facing in the future will be uh, artificial intelligence backed by big data and supercomputing, uh, where the algorithm will take on the capacity of making autonomous decisions. Uh, and how we develop that algorithm and how we ultimately train that algorithm with data sets uh, will be how we can have a confidence that the autonomous decisions that are being made are decisions that we can live with. And that goes to the very policy issues that, uh, that Daryl has raised.
2: So John, one of the fascinating things about this project is, and and I'm I was trying to think of another example of this, I suppose internet connectivity more generally is an example, but there aren't that many issues that, You can at once go through discrete domestic policy areas like how is this going to affect education and how is it going to affect healthcare, but then also frame it in terms of great power competition. Is China going to be the world leader in this or are we? And also frame it in terms of pretty granular national defense policy questions and so I guess my, my question is, is this fundamentally an issue of international competition and sort of great power rivalry? Is it fundamentally an issue of domestic governance? Is it both? Is it, you know, sort of what is the broad rubric through which we should think about AI, both at a domestic and international level?
3: Well, it's, it's all of those things that you've described, Ben. Uh, artificial intelligence will be uh, one of the most transformative aspects of emerging technology of the 21st century. And it's about 50 years old. I mean, the concept of artificial intelligence with some pretty good clarity and definition uh, was proposed years and years ago, decades ago. Uh, but I don't think that in those days, big data data sets and computing power were such that uh, many of the scientists who proposed the various qualities and potential benefits of artificial intelligence, I don't think that they envisaged that we'd achieve many of those for some time. Truth of course, is that with supercomputing, uh, with cloud computing, giving us power that we could not have imagined just years ago, and with uh, access to data sets that we then use to train the algorithms, virtually anything that uh, that is of value to us in our society has the capacity of being enhanced through artificial intelligence. And Daryl just gave us a very good list, everything from transportation to smart cities uh, to education. I think education will be transformed in, in many ways uh, through artificial intelligence and augmented and virtual reality. So we're we're going to see many transformational dimensions uh, unfolding within our domestic world. Uh, But very importantly, when we look across the international scene, in most cases, and we propose to do it in all cases, but we're still learning, uh, we seek to build ethical AI. We seek to create Uh, environments and applications of this technology that enhance the human experiment, that that operates within the rule of law, uh, that in fact improves societies. That's not the case with certain uh, authoritarian states. That's not the case. Uh, And we're seeing that today. China is the most sophisticated surveillance state on the planet. And in many respects, uh, it's because of their capacity to employ AI algorithms backed by almost unimaginable uh, sized data sets and the appropriate levels of supercomputing to keep tabs on the population. And frankly, the that's that's not who we are. That's not what we'll tolerate. And the community of democracies, whether it's the transatlantic relationship or the community of democracies more broadly. Uh, incorporating the East Asian democracies, the very powerful and sophisticated democracies there. That's not who we are. And so in many respects, the mastery of this emerging technology and the use to which it is put is going to define uh, the struggle, I think, in terms of great power competition in the 21st century. And we have to be attentive to this. And frankly, uh, you know, I've always been one who has sought to define the relationship with China as one where we should see cooperation, but we cannot permit ultimately the Chinese to dictate the technology of artificial intelligence in the 21st century for all the reasons that I've just attempted to explain.
2: All right. So when people talk about AI and you mentioned this in your introduction, there is a lot of sort of images that come up, uh, whether it's the Terminator or Uh, HAL, or some kind of self-aware, you know, malevolent network that is trying to seize control. You know, in fact, AI is seldom general purpose, is never self-aware in the science fiction sense of the word, at least not yet. AIs tend to be a very specific purpose. And they tend to be very good at one thing. And so I'm curious to what extent you guys think that the fears of AI that we have are realistic fears. And to what extent they're kind of more, I don't want to be disparaging of it, but more Luddite kind of Disparagement of and fear of technological progress of precisely the sort that we always see when technology is evolving very quickly in fashions that make uh, certain human jobs less valuable or even obsolete. I mean, I would
1: say the Hollywood fears of the Terminator or a malevolent robot that's going to enslave humanity is vastly overblown. I personally don't uh, worry about that. I think it'll be uh, generations uh, before uh, humans actually have to worry about uh, that because it's going to take a long time for uh, the AI to really develop. But that doesn't mean that the more specific fears of are the AI systems in the financial area biased, like that is a very reasonable concern. We actually see evidence of that How safe are autonomous vehicles going to be? How are we deploying technology in healthcare and in education? I mean, there are just a lot of questions related to the equity of access to digital technology. Uh, We see a lot of benefits uh, in uh, various uh, areas, but if people don't have equitable access, it means they're going to be winners and losers. And so these fundamental questions of fairness and bias and human safety are very legitimate. We talk a lot about possible solutions to these uh, problems. We present a policy blueprint on things that we think uh, would be necessary. I mean, we entitled our book Turning Point because we do feel that we're at a major uh, junction point where things could go in a positive direction or in a negative direction. But we think the crucial factor in determining the future is really the policy response. And there are very reasonable policy steps that can be undertaken to address a lot of people's concerns.
2: And so let's talk about the bias concern because I it 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 really does show up uh recurrently in the book Why the Fear of Bias in AI and to what extent are AIs in general written with significant biases of one sort or another and you know to what extent is that a function of intentional coding discrimination versus more subtle, unintentional, I I would say, subconscious biases on the part of the coders or even superficially or notionally unbiased algorithms that have highly biased effects? What's driving the bias concern here?
1: I mean, the AI is only as good as the data that goes into it, and the big problem we face right now is many of the data sets that are being used to train AI are either unrepresentative or incomplete. And that becomes a big source of bias. I mean, we see this very clearly in the facial recognition software area, where a lot of the pictures that are used to train a facial recognition system come from Caucasians. And so it turns out the facial recognition software actually is pretty accurate for white people, uh, but not for non-white people. So There's an obvious recommendation here, uh, which is in order to reduce the bias in uh, AI in areas like this, we need to improve the representativeness of the data that go into those algorithms.
3: And as Daryl said, again, the, the algorithm itself may have no inherent bias to it at all, but it's no better than the data by which it's trained. And data that is extracted from segments of our society that have no access and have no presence in the data sets themselves or are vastly underrepresented in the data sets themselves or if the data frankly has uh, corruption in it and I don't mean corruption in the context of of uh, malfeasance I mean corruption in the context of it's just not representative and doesn't uh, accurately reflect the, uh, the the population that created the data set itself if that exists and that's the basis for the training of the algorithm then the algorithm will make decisions which are inherently biased. And that's that's the problem that Daryl explained. And that's one of the issues that we hit very very hard in the book because it's it's important to understand that AI in and of itself is not going to be inherently biased. But if the information used uh, for that algorithm is biased in the context of it's not representative or is corrupted in some form or another, then we can't imagine that the decisions will be otherwise than reflective of those uh, disparities uh, coming out of the data sets.
2: And yet some AIs themselves are biased in their judgments. You design an AI to a, take a whole lot of data and, you know, learn off of it, but you're also teaching it to make judgments. And if you create an algorithm that makes judgments that are informed by your own, prejudices or preconceptions, uh, you could have bias inherent in the, in the AI itself, right? Even before you get to the data.
1: I mean, I think in the finance area, there are some problems that need to be addressed. So we know in the bricks and mortar world of banks and financial institutions that uh, banks often would redline certain neighborhoods and simply not provide mortgages or loans to people who lived in low-income areas, and that was a real problem. Uh, The risk today is that we may be creating digital redlining, that there's so much information about people that even if you are explicitly excluded from incorporating issues of race or gender into the algorithm, there are lots of proxy measures that can be incorporated in an AI solution that end up uh, biasing against uh, racial minorities or uh, women. So this is an area where we need to develop the policy and regulatory uh, means to uh, deal with bias and redlining in a digital uh, space. It's often hard uh, to do that and to make sure that the algorithm uh, works uh, fairly, uh, but that's a very important priority in terms of moving forward in order to avoid these types of problems.
2: John, you referred earlier to ethical AI, which uh, is a term that will not mean a lot to a lot of people without explanation. Ethical AI is sometimes contrasted with black box AI And it has connotations both of, you know, ethics as we traditionally understand them, but also of a certain degree of algorithmic transparency. So talk us through what you mean when you say ethical AI and what examples of ethical versus unethical AI would look like.
3: The the term ethical AI or open AI or explainable AI is an objective Uh, as we move forward uh, in this technology. And what it means is we want the people who ultimately are, who are served uh, by this particular algorithm, we want them to feel as though both the coding and the training, the coding of the algorithm and the training of the algorithm was done in a way that's explainable, that's done in a way that is transparent, that's the open AI, uh, and was done uh, in a way that gives us the capacity to have high levels of confidence uh, in the ethical orientation of the algorithm and the outcomes. And sometimes we use the acronym ELSI, capital E, capital L, capital I, little i. The little i stands for implications. And when we think about any emerging technology, but in this case, uh, artificial intelligence, we talk about the ethical component of the implementation and the application of this particular algorithm. We talk about the, the legal propriety of it. In fact, it, is, it, is it legal in the way in which uh, we are, are proposing the use of this particular algorithm? And finally, what are the societal implications? And as coders, uh, as uh, elements within the private sector who are uh, contemplating the development of algorithms or the, the uh, perfection of algorithms, uh, improvements over time, uh, if we are ge- if we are governed by a bias, if you will, to ensuring that we understand the ethical implications, the legal implications, and the societal implications of an algorithm or an outcome, then it is explainable, it is open, and the users, those who are affected by the algorithm, uh, can have a high level of confidence that, that their lives will be enhanced by it rather than uh, their lives being threatened.
1: Yeah, I think uh, John is exactly right on that, on distinguishing ethical from unethical AI. I would say the worst example that I have seen is really in the criminal justice area. You know, that obviously is a very important area because people go to prisons over uh, bad decisions in that area or they end up on uh, probation. And in the criminal justice area, there are many jurisdictions that are. Engaging in what are called predictive analytics in which they essentially mine a bunch of existing data and Make predictions in terms of who is at risk of committing another uh, crime and and they use these uh, data analytics to direct law enforcement uh, resources and uh, you know where the police should engage in uh, various activities, but when you look at the actual algorithms that they're developing you know, in the criminal justice area, there is a tremendous amount of uh, racial bias. And so the algorithms basically predict that some minorities are likely to commit another crime because they have been convicted of a crime in the past. And given the fact that there's so much uh, bias and discrimination in the criminal justice area, like I think that's an example of how AI is being used for unethical purposes. And are developing the algorithms in ways that almost reaffirm the existing bias. So we have to be very attuned to those types of negative uses of AI and, and make sure that you know, people are not being harmed and their futures are destroyed because of the algorithm.
2: So I'm struck as I hear you talk about this that a huge percentage of the general anxiety that you guys regard as legitimate, as opposed to the sort of science fiction, computers are taking over anxiety, is actually coalesces around the areas where AIs are making judgments about people, as opposed to, for example, you know, autonomous vehicles, where the the real question comes down to can we figure out an appropriate liability regime and are autonomous vehicles likely to be safer or less safe than human driven vehicles but the the crunch of a lot of what you're saying is a sort of anxiety about situations in which aIs are making making judgments that affect Actual people's lives and kind of evaluating their fitness for things in one way or another, and that that makes us uncomfortable, perhaps rightly so, particularly when we don't understand the bases for the judgments. Is that fair?
1: Uh, I think that is a uh, completely fair. I think that's a good summary of a lot of the problems in AI as well as people's anxieties about AI, and you know. I give a lot of talks about AI around the country and around the world and people worry about a loss of human agency and they worry that humans are no longer really in control of the software. And I think that's something that we really need to address. Uh, one of the things uh, we develop in our concluding uh, chapter is we talk about the need for annotated software and annotated AI. I mean, most AI solutions have millions of lines of code and you know even professional coders could not look at uh, all the code and figure out what is going on. But we suggest that software designers start to annotate their code so that when they reach a major decision point, they're drawing on certain types of data, they annotate it with how they made that decision and on what basis uh, they made that decision so that we can then go back if there are problems or if there are harms to humans and try and figure out what went wrong and how we can go about correcting. So I think you're absolutely right that a lot of the anxiety does come from uh, people worrying about the software making uh, judgments, but we really have to put an emphasis on how we can improve the basis on which the algorithms operate.
2: All right. I want to talk about some some of the discrete policy areas that you guys address in, in the book, which are actually in and of themselves huge subjects and not discrete areas. They're each subjects that you could have written an entire book about themselves. But I want to focus, because we are lawfare, on the ones that have uh, obvious security implications, so let's start with the national defense arena. The debate over lethal autonomous weapon systems is a relatively old one, and it's one actually that lawfare was you know uh, an early part of the sort of public arguments over over the propriety of these systems to what extent and this is a uh, a loaded question. Uh, uh, to what extent is the AI debate with respect to the military and national defense applications limited to uh, lethal autonomous systems, and to what extent is it broader than that?
3: Well, let me uh, jump in on this. It's it's quite broad, actually. <laughs> it's very healthy debate, uh, in my mind. If you build a firewall, Ben, if you in- envisage a firewall between The application of combat power uh, on the one side of the firewall, and I'll come to that in a moment, and and all other military functions on the other side of the firewall, such as medical service, maintenance, uh, supply discipline, uh, traffic management. There are many, many functions uh, that are performed in the military where artificial intelligence can both improve effectiveness, efficiency, and safety. And uh, we're seeing a a robust conversation uh, about that. Predictive and preventive maintenance, for example, uh, has really come a long way where there are smart systems that can be placed on uh, many of our dynamic systems, whether it's a a generator on board a ship, or an aircraft, or a tank, or any kind of a vehicle which can monitor the operating systems on board that particular platform and detect at the earliest possible moment, anomalies in the dynamic systems, which can give sufficient warning to prevent catastrophic failure. Now that's, that's enormously valuable uh, to the military in the context of efficiency in terms of keeping systems up and running uh, for the operational efficiency of the unit itself, but also in the expenses associated with uh, maintenance. And that applies to aircraft, it, it applies to terrestrial vehicles, it applies to shipborne uh, systems as well. So, just that alone is a tremendous opportunity.
2: Let me pause you right there for a second, because I think the implications of what you just said are pretty vast, which is if you snapped your fingers tomorrow and said there will never be lethal autonomous systems used by the U.S. military and you know, we can so we can just end that debate. We can get rid of that debate. What you're saying is, by doing that, you wouldn't begin to scratch the surface of the impact of the AI conversation on the U.S. military.
3: Yeah, and there's really very little. That that is correct. That's a fair statement, uh, Ben. And I would not say that uh, there's much debate actually uh, about uh, whether AI has a role in the U.S. military in that context. You know, an aircraft, for example, that is not self-aware because of its AI, but certainly has the capacity in flight uh, to determine whether it's it's beginning to have certain, once again, the artificial intelligence that is now inherent in the dynamic systems, monitoring the dynamic systems, are able to detect at the earliest possible moment anomalies in that operation that permit that aircraft uh, on its own uh, to project down to the wherever it may be, the airfield or the the maintenance facility, that it is coming in with a potential maintenance problem. Uh, And the outcome of that particular signal is that when the ground crew meets that aircraft in the pit for maintenance, the artificial intelligence has already, because of natural language processing, selected the pages from the maintenance manuals that those uh, mechanics are going to have to use to do the maintenance. The parts have already been selected. The parts are ready to go. The pages of the maintenance manual are already ready to go. The diagnostics have already occurred. They're already loaded onto the tablet. And, and when that aircraft pulls into the, uh, into the pit for the maintenance that'll be necessary, it's because we, we're out ahead of the potential failure of a component rather than experiencing a catastrophic failure that could require hours and hours. This means that we can keep an aircraft in the air longer. This means that the turnaround between sorties is shorter. And this means that uh, the pilot will be safer. That means we'll be much more efficient in the application of parts. That's just one example that could fly across the entire, the entire military. Uh, also, maintenance of, of uh, the supply system, knowing where everything is, and pushing those supply elements in the direction that is necessary based on an overarching awareness of an operational environment, recognizing that there may be uh, elements within the force that are engaged in extensive combat operations and beforehand, having done the analysis that we're going to need medical support for burn victims. We're going to need to be pushing fuel uh, resupplies forward to a particular area to, so they'll be ready and in position anticipating a need based on the training of certain algorithms uh, on what a, a tank battle does in terms of the consumption of petroleum uh, and uh, tank ammunition, main gun ammunition, etc. This is an area of both predictive maintenance, predictive supply that was done manually and required lots of people to do it. Now it could be inherent to the planning process to give commanders a sense of of what it will cost them to to select a certain course of action and have that kind of uh, decision support very, very quickly.
2: You offer another example that I was very struck by, which is hypersonic missiles, where the implication of what you're saying is that the guidance of these systems is impossible to imagine without AI and i was struck by that because you know even that implies that you know there there is a generation of weapon systems that our adversaries will be developing even if we are not that are pervasively dependent on AI not merely for their lethal decision-making, but for their functional operation. Is that, is that reasonable to anticipate?
3: It is. And, uh, you know, we talk about the concept of hyperwar uh, as one that we're going to have to face. Uh, and hyperwar is conflict uh, that is conducted at speeds so great that the presence of the human in the decision-making loop slows down that particular side uh, to the extent that it's fighting at a disadvantage. Sometimes it's called conflict or war at the zero phase. And without spending too much time on this, because we, we just don't have the time in this particular uh, podcast, there is something called the UDA loop, the uh, observe, orient, decide, and act sequence, and it's in a loop, it's always circular, leaders and decision makers are making these decisions in a loop constantly in combat. It is the intent of the one side or the other to compress the OODA loop to a point where the commander can make decisions cycling through that loop more quickly than the opponent. Warfare is a time-competitive process. That's the bottom line. The side that can generally move more quickly, can decide more quickly, can act more quickly, will generally be the side that can uh, prevail. And that that often is uh, completely apart from the size of armies or the size of military forces. It often is decided by the commander who can decide more quickly and move more quickly through the Oodaloo. If we can position artificial intelligence, both in the gathering and the orientation on information, which is the intelligence process, and artificial intelligence in decision support and decision assistance for the commander to weed out (coughs) extraneous information and provide uh, feasible and credible courses of action to that commander. And if we we have selected that commander early in, in that person's career, that woman's career, that man's career and educated and trained that individual to be comfortable in a hyper war environment. So when given that decision or offered those courses of action, at speeds that we could never have imagined in previous eras of warfare. And that officer has been trained, trained to be comfortable making these quick decisions and accepting these courses of action. We can compress that OODA loop and be faster than our opponent. And as a result of artificial intelligence being embedded in the mechanisms that provide us the ability to uh, observe the enemy, orient on the enemy, ultimately decide what to do about the enemy, and then act. And we're back to the firewall. The acting piece is where artificial intelligence will play in the the larger application of force and combat power.
2: So Ken Anderson likes to say that if you want to understand the military and uh, robotics, uh, and you might as well say AI here as well, You really have to understand the autonomous vehicles industry, because every aspect of the two has real parallels to each other, including the lethal potential of the technologies. So, Daryl, you guys have a whole chapter on autonomous vehicles here. This does not raise the discrimination or bias questions, but it does raise huge public safety questions as well as significant opportunities. So how do you understand the potential and dangers of the incredible advancements that we've made in autonomous vehicles and their relationship, the role of AI in those vehicles, both now and in the future?
1: I mean, you're right that the whole controversy over autonomous vehicles is, is all about the AI. I mean, it's the software that integrates the LIDAR information, the uh, camera information, and tries to keep the car or the truck on the road in the right lane uh, so as to avoid uh, hitting uh, people. But people do worry about the human safety of autonomous uh, vehicles. And the technology is coming along. It's actually getting uh, better. The funny thing is, if you look at... America has something like over 40,000 highway fatalities every year. 90% of the accidents involve some type of human error, either uh, drunk driving, uh, distractedness, uh, or something uh, like that. Autonomous vehicles are going to be much safer than human beings in the sense that the AI is not going to get drunk and is not going to get distracted. So at a fundamental level, Autonomous vehicles are definitely safer uh, than human-driven cars, but people worry about being killed by a machine. Uh, And so the whole notion of an autonomous vehicle is more worrisome to people. We actually have done surveys on public attitudes towards riding in an autonomous vehicle. And it's something like only about 21% of Americans say they, at this point in time, would be willing to ride in an autonomous vehicle. So this is going to be a tremendous problem for the auto industry as they start to roll out autonomous cars, uh, just overcoming those fears.
2: One of the things that this area has and presents quite pointedly is what the liability regime is going to look like when you create an autonomous vehicle and something goes wrong. Who carries the risk of that? Is it you know in 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 our in our normal highway situation the driver does, and to a to the extent there's a Product defect, the manufacturer of that product does. In an environment in which it's not entirely clear who the driver is, and we have layers of liability protections for software and hardware manufacturers, as well as a general, quite protective environment for internet carriers. You know, when you get in a Tesla and put it in autopilot mode and it fails, who's going to be responsible for that?
1: Well, that is the big question for autonomous vehicles. And you're right that the answer to that is almost completely unresolved right now. Because in the case of human drivers, it's easy because most of the time it is a human error that leads to the accident. And so the liability Uh, Almost always is going to lie with one of the humans uh, involved with that. And of course, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out which human is actually uh, liable. When you move to autonomous vehicles, then it's a question of if there's a human operator in the car, is that person responsible? Is it the hardware, meaning the car itself or the computers that are uh, powering uh, the car? Or is it the software? you know, did the AI integrate the information uh, properly? Did somehow uh, the LIDAR misread road conditions, which actually has been a problem in, in uh, some of the uh, cases uh, that have uh, hit the uh, news. And so resolving those liability issues is one of those policy and legal types of questions that need to get resolved. One, to reassure people that autonomous vehicles actually are safe. And then two, uh, just to deal with that important question of who is going to be responsible. But it all illustrates uh, kind of the larger point we make in the book, Of humans are in control in the sense that the way we deal with technology harms, either in case of AI or uh, any other type of technology, is through uh, laws, policies, and regulations. It is within our power to work on resolving those uh, liability uh, questions. So it's really not a problem of the technology. It's a problem of us needing to clarify the liability associated with the technology.
2: Yeah. And uh, so... Two other uh, policy area specific questions, and then I want to talk a little bit about the governance. One is, you know, people like Andrew Yang and many others have talked about robotics as a, you know, sort of major threat to American jobs. And I'm wondering whether there's a bit of a conflation here you know a lot of what he's talking about in the industrial sectors regarding you know robots is first of all actually derivative of of the AI issues that you guys are talking about but secondly whether AIs potentially pose as well as a giant growth opportunity in certain areas of the economy a parallel threat to Office jobs that uh, robots pose in in the manufacturing sector is this a you know another step down the road to the expendability of labor?
1: Robots and AI are going to take over the repetitive boring and dangerous tasks so from that standpoint it's actually a positive development. And on the jobs front i mean there's no question automation ai and robots are going to take some jobs and certainly some of the entry-level jobs are at risk but as you point out some professional jobs like radiologists it turns out ai can read cat scans and x-rays pretty accurately so uh, radiologists uh, represent an occupation uh, that is going to be at risk but at the same time that some jobs are going to be lost AI and emerging technologies are going to create new types of jobs. Certainly anything related to data analytics uh, will be uh, in a very hot demand, but also we're going to need more ethicists just to figure out these ethical issues associated with uh, AI. I think the thing I worry the most about is not lost jobs, but a mismatch between the new jobs that are being created and the skills that people have. We are going to need to move to a model of lifelong learning where people are going to have to upgrade their job skills at age 30, 40, 50,
2: and 60. We're going to have to retrain all those radiologists as ethicists. Perhaps. (laughs) You mentioned radiologists, and I want to talk briefly about healthcare because, you know, other than the autonomous vehicles industry and perhaps financial services, uh, this is really the area where this is really likely to touch everybody's lives in a way that's very direct and so when you when you think about ai in the context of of healthcare are we talking mostly opportunity or are we talking mostly downside and risk
1: i mean i think there's tremendous opportunity for ai in the healthcare area I mean, in this COVID world, we're already seeing AI being used to help develop new drugs and new vaccines uh, because the software can review scientific uh, literatures much faster and more efficiently than humans and find promising new chemical compounds and Things that might have been used in the past to deal with one issue that could be relevant for a, a new a types of issue. Uh, we're also seeing the use of data analytics to attract uh, the spread of the uh, pandemic uh, and also show problems, uh, racial disparities, uh, geographic uh, breakdowns, and uh, so on. A lot of the healthcare applications are basically uh, drawing on wearable devices, remote monitoring devices that might record your uh, health uh, symptoms automatically transmit them to health providers, and then that provider on a proactive basis can contact you to say, hey, you may not realize it, but your blood pressure is spiking, and, you know, here's an issue that we need to address. So I do think there are many uh, potential uh, benefits in the healthcare area, although we do have to still address the equity issues of whether everybody will share in the benefits of those new applications.
2: All right, before we wrap up, I want to, you know, we've talked about such an amazingly diverse range of questions here. I want to come back to where we started, which is is this subject so broad that it defies any cohesive governance principles, or is there some set of ideas about governance and about oversight and management that can be in some meaningful way cross-cutting as we think about how to manage this transition. It certainly
1: is important to address the question of who decides. I mean, that is a basic governance question that really cuts across every one of these uh, sectors. So I think that's an important thing. In the book, we talk about bringing together experts from a variety of different areas, the coders, the ethicists, the social scientists, to uh, work on uh, these uh, types of issues. So I think in many of the AI areas, we need a new type of governance that can address the problems that have developed.
2: The book is Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. The authors are Daryl West and John Allen, my two bosses. John, Daryl, pleasure speaking to you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced In cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and when we have the president and vice presidents of the Brookings Institution on for a show, that is a good illustration of what in cooperation with means. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our audio engineer this episode is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast, so tweet about us, share us on Facebook, pin us on Pinterest, and upvote us on Reddit. Make TikTok videos about it on your way to the store.com where you can get all the Lawfare merch your little heart could desire. But don't forget to stop at whatever podcast distribution service you got us from, and rate and review the Lawfare Podcast. You know how many stars we want from you. Our music is, of course, performed by the one, the only, Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.